Section 12 of the Natural History, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. The Natural History, Volume 4 by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 12, Book 17. Chapter 14. Seed Plots. In laying out a seed plot, it is necessary that a soil of the very highest quality should be selected, for it is very often requisite that a nurse should be provided for the young plants, who is more ready to humour them than their parent soil. The ground should therefore be both dry and nutritious, well turned up with the mattock, replete with hospitality to the stranger plants, and as nearly as possible resembling the soil to which it is intended they should be transplanted. But a thing that is of primary importance, the stones must be carefully gathered from off the ground, and it should be walled in, to ensure its protection from the depredations of poultry. The soil, too, should have as few chinks and crannies as possible, so that the sun may not be enabled to penetrate and burn up the roots. The young trees should be planted at a distance of a foot and a half, for if they happen to touch one another, in addition to other inconveniences, they are apt to breed worms for which reason it is that they should be hoed as often as possible, and all weeds pulled up, the young plants themselves being carefully pruned, and so accustomed to the knife. Cato recommends, too, that hurdles should be set up upon forks, the height of a man, for the purpose of intercepting the rays of the sun, and that they should be covered with straw to keep off the cold. He says that it is in this way that the seeds of the apple and the pear are reared, the pine-nut also, and the cypress, which is propagated from seed as well. In this last, the seed is remarkably small, so much so, in fact, as to be scarcely perceptible. It is a marvellous fact, and one which ought not to be overlooked, that a tree should be produced from sources so minute, while the grains of wheat and of barley are so very much larger, not to mention the bean. What proportion, too, is there between the apple and the pear tree, and the seeds from which they take their rise? It is from such beginnings, too, as these that springs the timber that is proof against the blows of the hatchet, presses that weights of enormous size even are unable to bend, masts that support the sails of ships, and battering rams that are able to shake even towers and walls. Such is the might, such is the power that is displayed by nature. But a marvel that transcends all the rest is the fact of a vegetable receiving its birth from a tear-like drop as we shall have occasion to mention in the appropriate place. To resume, however, the tiny balls which contain the seed are collected from the female cypress, for the male, as I have already stated, is barren. This is done in the months which I have previously mentioned, and they are then dried in the sun, upon which they soon burst, and the seed drops out, a substance of which the ants are remarkably fond. This fact, too, only serves to enhance the marvel when we reflect that an insect so minute is able to destroy the first germ of a tree of such gigantic dimensions. The seed is sown in the month of April, the ground being first level with rollers, or else by means of rammers, after which the seed is thickly sown, and earth is spread upon it with a sieve about a thumb deep. If laid beneath a considerable weight, the seed is unable to spring up, and is consequently thrown back again into the earth. For this reason it is often trodden only into the ground. It is then lightly watered after sunset every three days, 
that it may gradually imbibe the moisture until such time as it appears above ground. The young trees are transplanted at the end of a year, when about three-quarters of a foot in length, due care being taken to watch for a clear day with no wind, such being the best suited for the process of transplanting. It is a singular thing, but still it is a fact, that if on the day of transplanting, and only that day, there is the slightest drop of rain or the least breeze stirring, it is attended with danger to the young trees, while for the future they are quite safe from peril, though at the same time they have a great aversion to all humidity. The jujube tree is propagated from seed sown in the month of April. As to the tuber, it is the best plan to graft it upon the wild plum, the keens and the calabrics, this last being the name that is given to a wild thorn. Every kind of thorn too will receive grafts remarkably well from the miksa plum as well as from the sorb. As to recommending transferring young plants from the seed plot to another spot before finally planting them out, I look upon it as advice that would only lead to so much unnecessary trouble, although it is most confidently urged that by this process the leaves are sure to be considerably larger than they otherwise would. Chapter 15. The Mode of Propagating the Elm The elm seed is collected about the calends of March, before the tree is covered with leaves, but is just beginning to have a yellow tint. It is then left to dry two days in the shade, after which it is thickly sown in a broken soil, earth that has been riddled through a fine sieve, before being thrown upon it, to the same thickness as in the case of the cypress. If there should happen to be no rain, it is necessary to water the seed. From the nursery the young plants are carried at the end of a year to the elm plots, where they are planted at intervals of a foot each way. It is better to plant elms in autumn that they are to support the vine, as they are destitute of seed and are only propagated from plants. In the vicinity of the city, the young elms are transplanted into the vineyard at five years old, or, according to the plan adopted by some, when they are twenty feet in height. A furrow is first drawn for the purpose, the name given to which is Novenarius, being three feet in depth, and the same in breadth or even more. Into this the young tree is put, and the earth is moulded up around it to the height of three feet every year. These mounds are known by the name of Arula in Campania. The intervals are arranged according to the nature of the spot, but where the country is level, it is requisite that the trees should be planted wider apart. Poplar and ashes, too, as they germinate with great rapidity, ought to be planted out at an early period, or, in other words, immediately after the Ides of February. In arranging trees and shrubs for the support of the vine, the form of the quincunx is the one that is generally adopted, and indeed it is absolutely necessary. It not only facilitates the action of the wind, but presents also a very pleasing appearance, for whichever way you look at the plantation, the trees will always present themselves in a straight line. The same method is employed in propagating the poplar from seed as the elm, and the mode of transplanting it from the seed plot is the same as that adopted in transplanting it from the forests. Chapter 16. The Holes for Transplanting But it is more particularly necessary in transplanting that the trees should always be removed to a soil that is similar, or else superior, to the one in which they grow before. If taken from warm or early ripening localities, they ought not to be removed to cold or backward sites, nor yet, on the other hand, from these last to the former. If the thing can possibly be done, the holes for transplanting should be dug sufficiently long before, 
to admit of their being covered throughout with a thick coat of grass. Mago recommends that they should be dug as a whole year beforehand, in order that they may absorb the heat of the sun and the moisture of the showers, or, if circumstances do not admit of this, that fires should be made in the middle of them some two months before transplanting, that being only done just after rain has fallen. He says, too, that in an argillaceous or a hard soil, the proper measurement is three cubits every way, and on declivitous spots one palm more, care being taken in every case to make the hole like the chimney of a furnace, narrow at the orifice than at the bottom. Where the earth is black, the depth should be two cubits and a palm, and the hole dug in a quadrangular form. The Greek writers agree in pointing out much the same proportions, and are of opinion that the holes ought not to be more than two feet and a half in depth, or more than two feet wide. At the same time, too, they should never be less than a foot and a half in depth, even though the soil should be wet, and the vicinity of water preclude the possibility of the soil going any deeper. If the soil is watery, says Cato, the hole should be three feet in width at the orifice, and one palm and a foot at the bottom, and the depth four feet. It should be paved, too, with stones, or if they are not at hand, with stakes of green willow, or, if these cannot be procured, with a layer of twigs, the depth of the layer so being a foot and a half. It appears to me that I ought here to add, after what has been said with reference to the nature of trees, that the holes should be sunk deeper for those which have a tendency to run near the surface of the earth, such as the ash and the olive, for instance. These trees, in fact, and others of a similar nature, should be planted at the depth of four feet, while for the others three feet will be quite sufficient. Cut down that stump, said Papirius Cursor, the general, when to the great terror of the praetor of Praenesti, he had ordered the lictors to draw their axes. And indeed there is no harm in cutting away those portions of the root which have become exposed. Some persons recommend that a bed should be formed at the bottom of potsherds or round pebbles, which both allow the moisture to pass and retain as much as is wanted, while at the same time they are of opinion that flat stones are of no use in such a case, and only prevent the root from penetrating the earth. To line the bottom with a layer of gravel would be to follow a middle course between the two opinions. Some persons recommend that a tree should not be transplanted before it is two years old, nor yet after three, while others again are of opinion that if it is one year old it is quite sufficient. Cato thinks that it ought to be more than five fingers in thickness at the time. The same author, too, would not have omitted, if it had been of any importance, to recommend that a mark should be made at the bark for the purpose of pointing out the southern aspect of the tree, so that, when transplanted, it may occupy exactly the same position that it has previously done, from an apprehension that the north side of the tree, on finding itself opposite to a southern sun, might split and the south side be nipped by the northeastern blasts. Indeed, there are some persons who follow a directly opposite practice even in the vine and the fig, by placing the north side of the tree when transplanted towards the south and vice versa, being of opinion that by adopting this plan the foliage becomes all the thicker and the better able to protect the fruit, which is less liable to fall off in consequence, and that the tree is rendered all the better for climbing. Most people, however, take the greatest care to turn to the south, that part of the tree, from which the branches have been lopped at the top, little thinking that they expose it thereby to a chance of splitting from the excessive heat. For my own part I should prefer, 
that this part of the tree should face that point of the heavens which is occupied by the sun at the fifth or even the eighth hour of the day people are also equally unaware that they ought not through neglect to let the roots be exposed to the air long enough to get dry and that the ground should not be worked about the roots of trees while the wind is blowing from the north or indeed from any point of the heavens that lies between north and the southeast or at all events that the roots should not be left to lie exposed to these winds the result of such modes of proceeding being that the trees die the grower being all the while in total ignorance of the cause cato disapproves too of all wind and rain whenever the work of transplanting is going on when this is the case it will be beneficial to let as much adhere to the roots as possible of the earth in which the tree has grown and to cover them all around with clods of earth it is for this reason that cato recommends that the young trees should be conveyed in baskets a very desirable method no doubt the same writer to approves of the earth that has been taken from the surface being laid at the bottom of the hole some persons say that if a layer of stones is placed beneath the root of the pomegranate the fruit will not split while upon the tree in transplanting it is the best plan to give the roots a bent position but it is absolutely necessary that the tree should be placed in such a manner as to occupy exactly the centre of the hole the fig tree if the slip when planted is stuck in a squill such being the name of a species of bulb it is said to bear with remarkable rapidity while the fruit is exempt from all attacks of the worm the same precaution too in planting will preserve the fruit of all other trees in a similar manner who is there too that can entertain a doubt that the very greatest care ought to be taken of the roots of the fig tree when transplanted indeed it ought to bear every mark of being taken and not torn from out of the earth upon this subject i omit various other practical precepts such for instance as the necessity of moulding up the roots with a rammer a thing that cato looks upon as of primary importance while at the same time he recommends that the wound made in the stock should be first covered with dung and then bound with a layer of leaves chapter seventeen the intervals to be left between trees the present seems to me to be the proper occasion for making some mention of the intervals that ought to be left between the trees some persons have recommended that pomegranates myrtles and laurels should be planted closer together than the other trees leaving however a space of nine feet between them apple trees they say should be planted a little wider apart and pear trees almonds and figs even still more so the best rule however is to consult the length of the branches and the nature of the spot as well as the shade that is formed by the tree for it is of great importance to take this last into consideration the shadow thrown by the large trees even is but of small dimensions when the branches are disposed around the body of the tree in a spherical form as in the apple and the pear for instance in the cherry on the other hand and the laurel the shadow projected is of enormous extent chapter eighteen the nature of the shadow thrown by trees the shadows of trees are possessed of certain properties that of the walnut is baneful and injurious to man in whom it is productive of headaches and it is equally noxious to everything that grows in its vicinity the shadow too of the pine has the effect of killing the grass beneath it but in both of these trees the foliage presents an effectual resistance to the winds while at the same time the vine is destitute of such protection the drops of water that fall from the pine the quercus and the holm oak are extremely heavy 
but from the cypress none fall. The shadow, too, thrown by the last tree is extremely small, its foliage being densely packed. The shadow of the fig, although widespread, is but light, for which reason it is allowed to be planted among vines. The shadow of the elm is refreshing and even nutrimental to whatever it may happen to cover, though in the opinion of Atticus, this tree is one of the most injurious of them all, and, indeed, I have no doubt that such may be the case when the branches are allowed to become too long. But at the same time I am of opinion that when they are kept short, it can be productive of no possible harm. The plain also gives a very pleasant shade, though somewhat dense, but in this case we must look more to the luxuriant softness of the grass beneath it than the warmth of the sun, for there is no tree that forms a more verdant couch on which to recline. The poplar gives no shade whatever, in consequence of the incessant quivering of its leaves, while that of the alder is very dense, but remarkably nutritive to plants. The vine affords sufficient shade for its wants, the leaf being always in motion, and from its repeated movement tempering the heat of the sun with the shadow that it affords. At the same time, too, it serves as an effectual protection against heavy rains. In nearly all trees the shade is thin, when the footstalks of the leaves are long. This branch of knowledge is one by no means to be despised or deserving to be placed in the lowest rank, for in the case of every variety of plant the shade is found to act either as a kind nurse or a harsh stepmother. There is no doubt that the shadow of the walnut, pine, the pitch tree and the fir is poisonous to everything it may chance to light upon. Chapter 19. The Droppings of Water from the Leaves a very few words will suffice for the water that drops from the leaves of trees. In all these, which are protected by a foliage so dense that the rain will not pass through, the drops are of a noxious nature. In our inquiries, therefore, into this subject, it will be of the greatest consequence what will be the nature developed by each tree in the soil in which we are intending to plant it. Declivities taken by themselves require smaller intervals between the trees, and in localities that are exposed to the wind, it is beneficial to plant them closer together. However, it is the olive that requires the largest intervals to be left, and on this point it is the opinion of Cato, with reference to Italy, that the very smallest interval ought to be twenty-five feet, and the largest thirty. This, however, varies according to the nature of the site. The olive is the largest of all the trees in, in Betica, and in Africa, if indeed may believe the authors who say so, there are many olive trees that are known by the name of Millerii, being so-called from the weight of oil that they produce each year. Hence it is that Mago has described an interval between the trees of no less than 75 feet every way, or of 45 at the very lowest, when the soil happens to be meagre, hard and exposed to the winds. There is no doubt, however, that Betica reaps the most prolific harvest from between her olives. It will be generally agreed that it is a most disgraceful piece of ignorance to lop away the branches more than is absolutely necessary in trees of vigorous growth, and so precipitate old age. As also, on the other hand, what is generally tantamount to an avowal of unskilfulness on the part of those who have planted them, to have cut them down altogether. Nothing can reflect greater disgrace upon agriculturists than to have to undo what they have done and it is therefore much the best to commit an error in leaving a superfluity of room. End of section 12. Read for you by Chiquito Craster, Birmingham, 
Alabama.